Welcome to the only football podcast that talks about baseball in the offseason. It's the 22 Weeks Offseason Podcast. That's right, I'm Matt Ryan. We're back, but not in the form that you're used to. Between now and the start of the football season, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. We're going to be on once a week, if not once every two weeks, with an interview or a conversation about something we find interesting in the world of sports. And this week, our first topic is Ernie Banks. Ernie Banks was a man that meant a lot to the city of Chicago and the sport of baseball. Sadly, he passed away a few weeks ago, and we would never have the opportunity to speak with him. But we have a story from Marvin Williams, back from the old GSI days, about meeting Ernie Banks and him trying to recruit Marvin to become a Chicago Cub. If you love Marvin Williams' stories, you're going to want to listen to that one when we come back a little bit later on. But before that... We're going to be speaking with the author of the last and most definitive book about the late, great Ernie Banks, and that is the book called Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub in the Summer of 69. It's by Phil Rogers. It was released by Triumph Press, and it is a great book. I've been reading the book, and it's a great look at the world that Ernie Banks lived in, especially 1969. We go into it with Phil about 1969 in the world of baseball. My New York Mets, the Chicago Cubs, the culture of baseball changing. Why the St. Louis Cardinals, who were picked to be the most the, the team in 1969 completely fell apart. All this and so much more. But right now we're going to go to break. And when we come back, we'll be speaking to Phil Rogers right here on the 22 Weeks Podcast. Hey guys, Matt Ryan here, and you know what? It's almost Valentine's Day. You want to get a gift for that special someone or just for yourself to make yourself feel better that you're spending Valentine's Day by yourself. We've all been there. I know it. You know it. The American people know it. But if you want to do something great on Valentine's Day, if you want to impress that special someone, go to Amazon.com. They've got great last-minute Valentine's Day gifts and deals for you and that person you love. So what you're going to do, is go to the Amazon.com link on 22weekspodcast.wordpress.com or it's in the episode description if you're listening to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever way you're listening to us. The link is right there in the episode description. You click through that link. You normally shop for whatever you want on Amazon. Not only do you get great deals and a great gift for Valentine's Day or just for yourself, if you want to get a copy of Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub in the Summer of 69 by Phil Rogers, you can do that. If you want to pre-order the Gil Hodges book that we're talking about a little bit later on in the show, you want to go do that right now. And not only do you do that, you don't get charged any extra, but we here at the 22 Weeks Podcast get a little bit on the back end. We get a little bit of money to keep this show going, to keep these podcasts and interviews going for you, the listener. So if you want to support this show, the easiest way, the cheapest way is to go to Amazon.com through our link on iTunes and Stitcher. Joining me right now is the national baseball columnist for the Chicago Tribune and also the author of a new book, Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub, and the Summer of 69. Phil Rogers joining us on the podcast. Phil, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, oh, very happy to do it. Thanks for asking me. Oh, Ernie Banks recently passed away. He left behind a great legacy. And in this book, you uh, focus on one specific part of it, uh, the summer of 69. And as a New York Mets fan, that year, that summer means a lot to me and means a lot to millions of Mets fans throughout New York City. But it means a lot to Chicagoans, too, because it was a back-and-forth battle between two teams that were moribund for a long period of time, the Mets since their inception in 62, and the 
Cubs for almost over 50 years at that point? Yeah, the uh, um, well, they had been to the 1945 World Series, uh, but they had really fallen into um, decay uh, after World War II, and they had uh, started to get their groove back a little bit in the mid-60s, thanks in part um, to Ernie Banks, thanks to their great scout, Buck O'Neill, who delivered them Billy Williams uh, and some other players. They made a smart trade for Fergie Jenkins. Uh, and when they hired um, Leo DeRocher in 66, they started to get ambitious for the first time. But they, uh, the Cardinals were the team that just kind of hung over both of those teams. And, you know, I, I think the, uh, the expectation going into 1969 was that the Cardinals were just going to roll uh, to another – uh, easy title. It was the first year of divisional play, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that was different. But the Cardinals were clearly the powerhouse, and uh, in a, you know, the, the Mets kind of came from nowhere. Uh, the Cubs did have some hope, but I mean, they had they had uh, uh, really had to see that the, uh, they could beat the Cardinals because the Cardinals were the real powerhouse. They they truly were. They dominated the 60s, and they still are one of the most dominant franchises in the history of baseball. It's just interesting how that team has consistently, in comparison to all the other major markets compared to a Chicago, a New York, um, it's still the better of the franchises in the National League. It's the most consistent franchise outside of the Yankees in baseball. And it's amazing to see how they can be able to draw big players, create such great depth and talent in St. Louis of all places while the Los Angeles Dodgers they keep buying players or the Cubs keep trying to bring in uh, Theo Epstein as a GM and a president and they're trying to build 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 but St. Louis has somehow found the magic formula but they didn't in 69 which is really interesting to me because you had the Mets come out of nowhere due to Tom Seaver, Nolan Ryan, Jerry Kuzman and all the great players on that team and then you had Ernie Banks and the Cubs and would you say that Banks was near the end of his peak or towards the – he was in the end of his career because he retired in 71, but was this Ernie Banks' yeah, last – Yeah, he was, he was 30 – he was – yeah, he was, he was 38 in 69, and DeRozier had been trying to push him um, away for a while and was uh, running in new guys to play first base. I mean, in Leo DeRozier's book, Good Guys Finish Last, a nice guy finished last. He had uh, a line in it where he said, Ernie Banks was a great player in his time, but unfortunately his time wasn't my time. However, in that summer of 69, Ernie drove in 106 runs. And wow. was, you know, you know, when you consider the pitching in that National League era that you might be going up against a Gibson or a Koufax, a Drysdale, a Marichal, a uh, long list of great pitchers. Um, you know, Ernie Banks late in his career playing on bad knees was, was still delivered. But on the subject of the Cardinals, one, one thing that happened, um, which I think had a big off-the-field impact, was 69 was the first year that Marvin Miller tried to organize a player's action. It wasn't really a strike, it was called, but it was a boycott, and he was asking the players not to sign their contracts, um, and then they wouldn't be – couldn't be compelled to report to spring training. And it was a fight over the pension fund over what now would be a laughably small amount of money, but it was really the players for the first time um, showing their unified power. And this drove Gussie Bush absolutely out of his mind. <laughs> and while, 
the Cubs, for instance, had a, a crossing of guys like Ernie Banks and Ron Santo were really loyal to Phil Wrigley, their owner, and they came to camp and they did not want to be out of camp. Um, it, it, but when it the uh, it wasn't really much of a work stoppage. Uh, but when the when players a deal was made and players were told to report to spring training, Gussie Bush went to the Cardinals clubhouse and just verbally eviscerated. Uh, the best team in the National League. And, you know, if you can, you know, you we always hear about losing the clubhouse. Uh, the Cardinals clubhouse was lost on the first day that the door opened in 69. Wow. And I think that opened the door uh, to the other teams. I don't think the Cardinals were, were all in it because of that uh, big wound from the, the labor situation. And also later on with uh, Kurt Flood and the complete just opening of free agency in baseball and all started there in St. Louis with Kurt Flood. It's just an interesting thing to look at how St. Louis's impact off the field has affected the game moving forward and has opened up for them to lose their best players like Albert Pujols and some of the others that have gone to other teams. But to go back to 69, that season also, that entire decade is one of the last decades of its kind in baseball because that was the first decade of real expansion. You had Houston, you had San Diego, you had, uh, you had Seattle come in in 69, the 69-70 season. And also you had the Mets and the Twins come in in the early 60s. It's, and that constant evolution of the game, bringing in new teams, may have diluted the product so you wouldn't have teams where you had Ferguson, Jenkins, Ernie Banks, and Ron Santo on the same team. Two of them might be on the same team, but not all three moving forward until basically baseball opened the bank books and blew it wide open. But that evolution of growing with a team, having three amazing talents on your team for 15 to 20 years, that was the last real decade of that happening. Yeah, you're, you're right about being able to, to kind of keep a team together. You know, the, um, could still, I mean, the Yankees did it. Um, although it was more in five- and six-year gaps. If you look back at, at their run from 96 through maybe 03 or 04, whenever you want to say that that ended, um, you know, they, they kept guys together, but Jeter was the only guy that was uh, – well, Jeter, Posada, they, they were able to keep some guys together for their whole career, but it, it definitely uh, got harder. And, um, you know, I think the divisional play, we've seen it uh, – very recently with wild cards and then expanding the wild card that that seems to have made a lot of teams that were uh, perennial also rands. The Royals would be a prime example, seem to make them more ambitious and, and more hopeful and uh, you know, fans excited and front offices willing to go out and make massive changes. Like we've seen the Padres do this off season. Uh, the fact that if you could win in the high eighties, um, you've got a good chance to play in the playoffs. You know, I, I think expansion in 69 and the, the divisional format uh, did open that up, um, you know, that, that now you're only competing against five other teams, not nine others, as had been the case throughout most of the 60s. Um, so, yeah, it, it, definitely, it definitely changed uh, the dynamics a little bit. Uh, you know, and what changed the Mets was Tom Seaver, and Jerry Kuzman and, you know, that, that young pitching. I mean, they had Nolan Ryan, but he was just a pimple-faced kid and a, <laughs> a guy that would come in occasionally and just dazzle everybody. Uh, but it was the fact that they had won that uh, lottery bidding 
for Tom Seaver, uh, and then found the Jerry Kuzman to go along with him. And, you know, they really, I think, uh, Seaver brought a, a positive nature that they had lacked. And, you know, Seaver in that, that spring training, the team would go out on fishing trips after workouts in St. Petersburg, and Seaver would talk about winning, which was, um, you know, it was uh, the old guys were too cynical and had lost too much, and it took that new blood to come in there and see the possibilities. And, you know, I think Seaver really changed uh, that dynamic and gave gave the Mets some hope. And also uh, their manager, Gil Hodges, um, was, just did a remarkable job. Too. I, I love the fact for that Mets team that Tom, even though you had a young Tom Seaver who would be exactly the kind of a guy that most baseball men would run out there every fourth day for 40 starts in a season, <laughs> Gil Hodges was one of the in the minority in, in baseball in that time and using a five-man rotation, even though he had these great young arms. And it turned out to be really, really smart because he kept them and his bullpen fresh all the way through to their fast finish. That that's year is remembered in Chicago as a Cubs collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, it was more a really strong finish by the Mets, uh, I would argue, than a than a true collapse by the Cubs. But the the way DeRocher and Hodges used their players couldn't have been any more different. And we saw the the manager that was more patient and understood the long nature of the game better. Uh, you know, was rewarded with a huge September. Yeah, I was going to ask who you felt was the better manager, DeRocher, who had success in New York and in Brooklyn, compared to Hodges, who came to the Mets from Washington, basically because that team was collapsing in on itself. And it basically, you had Gil Hodges, who was a player for the Mets for a brief period of time before he retired. He wasn't the player he was in Brooklyn by any stretch of the imagination. But this was his first real big chance, I would say, as a manager, and in the brief time he was with the Mets before he sadly passed away in, I believe, 1970. Uh, he basically changed the face of an organization and com- and gave them their identity. He gave the Mets their identity, while Leo DeRocher, I completely forgot he managed the Cubs, especially in 69. And it's, it's weird that DeRocher's career, him managing Ernie Banks, Ron Santo, and Ferguson Jenkins can be considered an afterthought to someone who's not from Chicago. Yeah, I mean, he had a uh, he had a very interesting career, and uh, he was a very interesting player, a teammate of Babe Ruth, uh, a guy who was uh, uh, brash as a youngster and, and uh, not necessarily liked by the other players, always pushing hard. Um, but he's a Hall of Fame manager for the work he did um, with the Giants, not the uh, not the Cubs. And then he became, he kind of was a Hollywood guy, loved the attention, and he was suspended for his association with gambling for a year. And in a way, his career never really caught up. He had uh, he had spent some time as a coach, uh, but it, he went a long time without getting a managing opportunity before the Cubs gave him one. Um, and I was just astonished when I studied that 1969 season at how this guy mailed it in. He did things in 1969 that if, if any manager did one-tenth of the of the things he did now, the manager would be fired and, and in disgrace. He left – he physically left the team or called in sick, didn't go to a game uh, seven times in the 1969 season. 
Once, once there's an infamous story about him vanishing after a day game on a Saturday, not coming to the game on Sunday, and uh, not telling anybody he was coming. He was going, leaving, and he was actually at a summer camp in Wisconsin. At, at he married during that season. The woman he married had had a son. And he was at Parents' Day at the summer camp on Sunday in Wisconsin instead of being at Wrigley Field, and and he hadn't told anybody about it. And you know he demanded 110 percent from his players, uh, but he did not give them anything back in return for that. And you know I I, I think you know Phil Wrigley did come close to firing him during that season and didn't. And I, I don't know if history might have been changed had it been different, but. Um, it, it was it was really behavior that now would be looked at as just bizarre, and a lot of it had to do with his relationship uh, with the, the, his girlfriend, who he did marry. And when he married her, even though he would scream at the players and was anything but their buddy, he demanded on an off day in Chicago all of the players come to his wedding. It's just like what? What? What are you thinking? But you know, and, and the, the players like Banks and Santo. Those guys um, found a way to cope and to, to kind of tune him out and follow his lead, um, but you know they, I don't think they ever. There was talk about chemistry. I mean, it, it couldn't have been any worse between the manager and the players on that team. I, I find it to be ridiculous that a team with that much talent has a manager that is so. I would say a sociopath for that kind of behavior. I would think that sociopathic behavior by Derosha, but. It's really interesting to me that Phil Wrigley did not step in and see, I have the best Cubs team I may ever have, and this guy is squandering it with his ego and his insanity. Well, I don't know why he wouldn't step in and bring in somebody else or at least try to make a move to get... I know DeRosha had success in New York as a manager, but if he's doing that to your franchise, I don't imagine any owner today in Major League Baseball or any major sport putting up with that. I, I would not. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I, I think it was a pure clash of a powerful guy against, versus, I mean, uh, uh, Phil Wrigley and the Cubs had never had a manager like that. And they were also having, from an opening day home run on, they were having the summer of their lives. And, and while he was doing most of that stuff, they were still in first place. Um, so, you know, I, I think DeRocher felt like he was untouchable. And it turned out, you know, he really sort of was because, um, you know, he not only lasted through that season, but, um, you know, he stayed on the job afterwards. So, you know, I, I, I think he was sort of a bully, and I, I think the franchise let itself be bullied. Now, I don't know if, if we go fast forward, can we find examples of other powerful managers who wielded a lot of influence I think we probably could, but they were they weren't doing the kind of stuff that um, Leo DeRocher was doing and just uh, abandoning his post at times. I think the closest we can get is Billy Martin. That would be yeah, and and he was he was fired, rehired, fired, rehired. So that was its own little dysfunction. Didn't he live um, in like the Texas Rangers parking lot or something like that when he was managing the Rangers? I don't think that's true. Um, <laughs> I know. I've heard know, he like lived and, in an RV or something at some point in his career with his wife. Um, well, um, it might be, uh, but I, I, I don't know that that was that was the, the case in Texas. But he would be a guy. I mean, his when he went to the to Texas in 1974, 
also with Ferguson Jenkins for uh, as a coincidence. Wow. Um, they had they had uh, their first really good year, uh, and uh, to hire Billy Martin. Now here's the real shameful thing about that: to hire Billy Martin, Bob Short, the owner of the team, fired a young Whitey Herzog, who had had like half of a year as a manager. And then he uh, honestly said, I would fire my own son if I had a chance to hire Billy Martin. So, you know, Martin is another guy like that. And, you know, I think managers are drawn or owners are drawn to managers that have had success before. Certainly owners that haven't had that kind of success, um, you know, I think want to bring in a manager and give him a uh, a big crack at it. So, yeah, Martin is a uh, that's a good analogy. Yeah, no, that's actually, that's insane. And speaking of insane, there's a lot of insane peop, uh, ref, uh, things that gone on uh, in the career of Ernie Banks leading to the summer of 69. The first one that I want to focus on is the trades that sent Lou Brock. Now, if you're a baseball fan or a fan of hip, uh, hip-hop and you heard Lou, hitting Lou Brock running with speed, he was a cub. I did not know this till I read your book, and they traded him to St. Louis. Now... In 2015, if the Chicago Cubs traded one of their young, up-and-coming players who had infinite talent to the St. Louis Cardinals, I think that there would be a riot on 1060 West Addison. Yeah, probably. Although, you know, the caveat, as it often is, um, if this was next July and the Cubs had a chance to win and there was a piece out there they thought they had to get... Um, you know, fans and the fans, and you know, I think we all get short-sighted, and you want to get that piece. The Cubs did that in the Brock trade. That was Ernie Brolio. Uh, they had they had a pitching shortage, as they often did. Uh, they had concluded Lou Brock, who had actually been a roommate of Banks's, and was a guy that Banks loved. He was another Buck O'Neill uh, find. Uh, they had concluded that he was. Um, never going to, to be a really good player. And they had played him in the big leagues, but they called him to the big leagues really young. Um, and, it, and they were a little bit impatient in his development. And then they decided to trade him. But, the, you know, and that was heartbreaking for Ernie Banks in 68 to watch um, his his old roommate, uh, Lou Brock, in the World Series. And, you know, talk about, that, talk about a trade that paid off for the guy that was traded. That would be uh, Lou Brock's end of it. And uh, Brock was one of the Hall of Famers who um, attended and, and had a role at uh, Ernie's Memorial uh, two weekends ago. So it was, uh, you know, that, that tie has remained. And uh, we are talking about Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub, and the summer of 69. Uh, my guest is Phil Rogers on this show. This has been an, a fantastic conversation. I love talking old-school baseball, especially with someone with the pedigree and ability as you. And it is sad that Ernie Banks did pass away uh, two, two to three weeks ago, and Lou Brock was part of the memorial. Did you attend the memorial by any chance? I, I, I did, and it was it was an awesome um you know, it's a, it's a shame that we've lost Ernie, but, I mean, his, um, the visitation the day before the service and the service on Michigan Avenue, the, the uh, Cubs and Major League Baseball uh, helped the family put the service together, and, and it was awesome. There were uh, uh, the Hall of Famers that, that were there, Frank Robinson, uh, Reggie Jackson came in for it. Um, I, I thought the highlight for me, and I would recommend anybody that wants to get a real 
honest grasp on who Ernie Banks was. To go back and find the uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson uh, eulogy of, of Banks on YouTube and listen to it. And, and I know that in a sports context, you throw out Jesse Jackson and some people are turned off right away. Uh, but Ernie was a real big, important figure in the racial history of Chicago in that, um, you know, and Bud Seelig will say he's one of, one of his proudest things about baseball is Branch Rickey bringing Jackie Robinson to the Dodgers when he did. And he'll point out that it was before Brown versus the Board of Education. It was before uh, the Civil Rights Act. And you know uh, other steps in that process, and uh, Jesse Jackson correctly, the way he put it, I thought was beautiful. Was he said before, um, you know, Brown versus Education, before Dr. King, before Rosa Parks went into the fire, there was Ernie Banks, and I think that's true. And you know, Banks had to live on uh, the south side of Chicago, uh, far south of what then was Comiskey Park, the White Sox home, most of the time he played for the Cubs because of housing covenants that restricted African Americans from living anywhere near Wrigley Field. Um, and he, um, you know, I'm sure it came at a big personal cost to him, um, but he kept the smile on his face. He kept the consistent everyday presence. He was, I think, you know, he was the first African American that I think uh, uh, an awful lot of white Chicagoans really liked, uh, really felt like they got to know. Maybe that's the most important thing is that they felt like they got to know him. And um, I think he played a big role. Uh, but this was, you know, in the 19, and I, I touch on this some in my book too, is in the 60s in Chicago, you had a lot of really ugly riots after the Martin Luther King shooting. Um and Chicago, it was a bubbling place. There, it was it was a hotbed for the Black Panthers. Um, you know, it, it was a place where, um, you know, Ernie Ernie Banks and the other uh, recognizable African Americans were called to action by others in their community. And I think Ernie Ernie's you know his way of dealing dealing with that was no, I'm not going to come out and make a big statement. I'm not going to stop playing baseball. Uh, this is what I do, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do it with with enthusiasm and with spot with a smile on my face, and it's a part of Ernie Banks' story that gets tiptoed around a lot, and uh, I I enjoyed at the memorial service that that uh, Jesse Jackson jumped into it, and he you know he knew Banks uh, he knew Banks well, and uh, you know I would say as a guy who wrote wrote a book and did interviews with Ernie for the book. Uh, Banks is a, an easy guy to get to know, but a hard guy to get to know well. And I, I think uh, Jesse Jackson did a good job of explaining a side of Ernie Banks that a lot of people, um, you know, never really quite grasped. And you go into that in the book. Uh, in one of the early chapters, you talk about people getting to speak with Ernie. He was like, he would talk to everybody, but he may not always have been listening. Uh, there was one, uh, one mention, I, I don't know if this was you or with someone else, talking about Ernie asking how their mother was doing, and they said, oh, Ernie, uh, my mother passed away two years ago. Oh, that's good, that's good. And uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was actually, that was Nolan Ryan. Oh. He passed along that, that anecdote. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, one thing that uh, Tom Ricketts, the owner of the Cubs, uh, said to me when we were just talking, um, and, and I think he also referenced it during the memorial service, 
is the number of people that he meets who would say, hey, I just bumped into Ernie Banks, um, and we had the greatest visit. But as we walked away, I realized I hadn't asked him anything about baseball or Ernie <laughs> Banks because he would he would consistently keep the focus on the person he was talking to. And it's interesting. I, I talked to uh, Ken Burns, the documentarian, who had gotten to know Ernie some through work on his baseball series and would get phone calls in the night from Ernie because Ernie was a serial phone caller. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think um, – Ken Burns actually, you know, and I, I shared with Ken Burns my frustration at being able to get Ernie to open up about uh, his experiences with Jim Crow law and playing in the Negro Leagues. And, you know, this is a guy that uh, grew up in a in segregated Dallas, picked cotton with his father as a kid, uh, certainly, had a, um, certainly had experiences to draw from and, and talk about. And it was impossible to get him to talk about those things. And, and Ken Burns, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but he, he uh, drew a parallel to uh, war veterans he's talked to in the past who will talk about everything except that firefight where their friend got killed. Or, you know, it's like they have the, the, the really horrible memories you hold on to and you you, uh, you don't share. And uh, I don't know if that's quite the same with Ernie Banks' life experience, but I, I think there's, um, you know, I, I think there's something to that, that parallel. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it is, I'm really glad I did uh, my book on Ernie Banks, which came out, it, the work I did on it was in 2010, and it actually came out in 2011. And at that, you know, the last Ernie Banks biography that was done was uh, Banks' own Mr. Cub, a first-person book that came out in 1971 at the end of his career. Um, and for all the uh, – uh, all you know, there's, the bookstores are flooded with books about the Cubs because of the franchise's popularity. But I think because Banks is so reluctant to talk about Ernie Banks, um, there really hadn't been – a thoughtful uh, biography of him ever. So, you know, I, I know publishers tried to get Ernie to uh, participate in a book, to do another first-person kind of a book, uh, and never could succeed. So I'm, you know, as we don't have Ernie anymore, I'm really, uh, really glad that I had a chance to tell tell that story because there are so many really great stories worth telling. There certainly are, and I've been reading the book, and I love it, uh, the way you've been writing the book, the way it lays out, uh, just the way you've formatted it, is really good, and it's a, if you're a baseball fan and you want to read about the history of baseball, especially uh, Ernie Banks in 1969, which is a major year for the sport of pro baseball, I, would, I, I implore you to go buy this book. It's not because I've got Phil on the phone, but I really enjoy this book. I really enjoy that this story is out there. Uh, Ernie Banks meant a lot to the sport of baseball, and he obviously meant a lot to the city of Chicago. And for that story to be told so amiably by you, Phil, is it's great. And thank you so much for taking the time out today and speaking about the book and speaking about Ernie and the sport of baseball. Uh, do you have any new books coming out, uh, any projects you're working on? No, I am uh, you know, I, I'm a columnist for MLB.com, so I am focused – 
now in the 2015 season. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. As uh, I'm all in in the job Theo Epstein has done, um, basically tearing down the Cubs and building it from the ground floor up and it's focusing on teenage talent. And uh, I think my viewpoint is, you know, the Cubs aren't guaranteed to win a World Series because you look at the Atlanta Braves' experience with uh, their three Hall of Fame pitchers, and you see how uh, how difficult getting through these playoffs are. But I think the Cubs, I, I don't see any way that it can't work, that it won't work to give them uh, teams that will be consistently 90-plus wins over the next five years or so, and then... I think their front office is so smart that I see them sustaining the success. So I, I really do think that the next um, decade is going to be really remarkable in Chicago baseball. The White Sox, uh, Rick Hahn has done a great job as their general manager. They had obviously had a really good offseason this year. Um, you know, They don't quite have the resources the Cubs do based off of the popularity of Wrigley Field and the franchise. Uh, but I, I think the White Sox are going to do a good job too. But so I, that, that's my focus uh, now, and I, I can't wait for um, the next few seasons of baseball in Chicago because I, I think we're on the we're at the doorstep of what's going to be a remarkable time. I, I cannot wait. To, I love when see, seeing Chicago be competitive. Even though I'm a Mets fan, I love seeing the city of Chicago be competitive in baseball because those are great franchises. I have a place in my heart for Bill Veck, so I have a place in my heart for the White Sox, and you can't not love the Chicago Cubs. And as a, as a Mets fan, this is the most excited I've been for a baseball season, um, maybe since 2006, 2007, because the Mets are young, the Mets are primed with a great pitching staff if they don't blow it up. Uh, they're building talent. They're building their uh, their minor league system. I was uh, lucky enough to work for the Brooklyn Cyclones for a few years, so I know that they have a stellar minor league organization. And it's just going to be great to see what happens this year. One final, qu- two final questions: Will they ever get rid of Wrigley? And will the National League and American League not exist by the end of this decade? Ooh. Um, you know, I. I would say all things come to an end. And so, yeah, I think they will get rid of Wrigley. Um, you know, the, uh, I, I don't see it any time in the next 20 or 30 years. The remodel that they're doing now, you know, I, I think is, uh, um, you know, long overdue. And, you know, they, they may still need, though, um, you know, further out to, um, you know, that, that steel gold. I mean, they there's going to be a time they're going to need to tear it to the ground and either rebuild it on that location or move on. And, um, you know, I, I, regular, uh, a little different. Fenway, mm-hmm. there's a little more land around it. Um, so I, I, I hope I'm wrong and there's no end to, to Wrigley, uh, or Fenway because, you know, it is special. Even spring training. I like to go to Bradenton to watch the pirates because they play in the only spring training, stadium that is at all like what they all were like when I started covering spring training and baseball in the 1980s. So I am nostalgic for that period of spring training. Um, you know, triple that for the regular season. So that I, I, I love the old stadiums. Uh, I, I hope it lasts forever. And I don't know why you would have to get rid of, you know, the NFL is one entity. MLB is one entity. The NFL has the AFC, the NFC. MLB has the AL, the NL. They'll have to figure that DH rule out, I think. 
but maybe they won't. Uh, the smart, some of the smartest baseball people I know say it's a really good argument uh, for the sport because people are always going to argue about something, and he sees the DH rule as the equivalent of chocolate vanilla. What's your favorite <laughs> ice cream? And uh, and as as such, that's healthy to have different flavors of ice cream. So maybe it's healthy to have slightly different flavors of baseball. So uh, I I think the the structure will exist. Wow, you know what? That's actually a great argument and makes me want ice cream. Phil, thank you so much. We'll be reading you on <laughs> we'll be reading you on MLB.com and go out there right now. Go to triumphbooks.com and pick up your copy of Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub, and the Summer of '69. I want to thank Phil Rogers for joining us here on the 22 Weeks Podcast, and it was great to have that chance to talk with him. It was a great conversation, and hopefully we'll have him on the show again soon. Read his column over at MLB.com. I'm excited to read what his thoughts are regarding Chicago baseball heading into 2015. I'm legitimately excited about baseball this season. I have been a New York Mets fan my entire life, and as a as a Met fan, you get broken down, you get beaten, you get punished, you basically are beaten into submission every year. But this year kind of feels different. I know it's not going to be different. It's going to be the same as all the other years. The Mets are going to get like six inches away from a playoff spot and then fall apart in June. And then it's just going to be ugly and uncomfortable from there, like my prom. But going from that, the Mets have a great pitching staff, at least a great starting rotation. Still have David Wright. You've got some young hands that can make a difference on this team and the National League East is wide open. Philly's terrible. Atlanta's in a weird state of flux. And I don't know what Washington is anymore. Washington should be the most dominant team. It should. We're talking about the Washington Nationals now like we're talking about the Cardinals in 69. They're a team that should be great, but they're not great yet. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I'm not a baseball man, but I'm a man who watches baseball. And I see the National League East wide open. The Mets have a shot. Every team has a shot. But I think the Mets may be able to do something this year to where they end up in the playoffs. And if they do, you're going to see a very inebriated Matt Ryan wearing a Nolan Ryan jersey or a Tom Seaver jersey yelling, Hooray! Hooray! The Mets have made the playoffs to get swept by Arizona! That's probably going to happen. I'm just setting myself up for the inevitable failure of my favorite baseball team. But now we're going to throw to a bit of a gem from the back wall, back from the old GSI days between myself and Marvin Williams when we were on 90.3 FM WKRB, talking about him being courted by Mr. Cub himself to play for the Chicago Cubs.
And there's that story. You can follow Marvin on Twitter at the Side Notes. That's the Side Notes on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at I'm Matt Ryan. You can follow the show on Twitter at 22 Weeks Pod. That is 22 Weeks Pod. Coming up next week, we are not going to have a show, but coming up, we're going to have a guest talking about Gil Rogers. Gil Rogers was a big focus of our conversation with Phil Rogers, but we're going to have in studio Mort Zachter, the author of Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life, that book being put out by University of Nebraska Press. I got to say thank you to the lovely people over at University of Nebraska Press and Triumph Publishing. Uh, we have great people on this show that we deal with that are in the publishing business, and we are so thankful to have them be a part of this show and get us great guests like Phil Rogers, like Mort Zachter, we're going to have a whole lot more great guests for you. We're working on Johnny Unitas Jr. So if, for those who like the show, know Johnny Unitas is one of my favorite quarterbacks, one of my favorite players of all time. And he put out a book called Johnny, You and Me. And we're going to be talking about that book right here on the show. Till next time, I'll see you on another side of Sunday. This has been the 22 Weeks Podcast. This was a production of Gotta Say It Media. Executive producers Matthew Ryan and Marvin Williams. For more information, go to 22weekspodcast.wordpress.com.
I want to thank Phil Rogers for joining us here on the 22 Weeks Podcast, and it was great to have that chance to talk with him. It was a great conversation, and hopefully we'll have him on the show again soon. Read his column over at MLB.com. I'm excited to read what his thoughts are regarding Chicago baseball heading into 2015. I'm legitimately excited about baseball this season. I have been a New York Mets fan my entire life, and as a as a Met fan, you get broken down, you get beaten, you get punished, you basically are beaten into submission every year. But this year kind of feels different. I know it's not going to be different. It's going to be the same as all the other years. The Mets are going to get like six inches away from a playoff spot and then fall apart in June. And then it's just going to be ugly and uncomfortable from there, like my prom. But going from that, the Mets have a great pitching staff. At least a great starting rotation. Still have David Wright. You've got some young hands that can make a difference on this team and the National League East is wide open. Philly's terrible. Atlanta's in a weird state of flux. And I don't know what Washington is anymore. Washington should be the most dominant team. It should. We're talking about the Washington Nationals now like we're talking about the Cardinals in 69. They're a team that should be great, but they're not great yet. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I'm not a baseball man, but I'm a man who watches baseball. And I see the National League East wide open. The Mets have a shot. Every team has a shot. But I think the Mets may be able to do something this year to where they end up in the playoffs. And if they do, you're going to see a very inebriated Matt Ryan wearing a Nolan Ryan jersey or a Tom Seaver jersey yelling, Hooray! Hooray! The Mets have made the playoffs to get sweeped by Arizona! That's probably going to happen. I'm just setting myself up for the inevitable failure of my favorite baseball team. But now we're going to throw to a bit of a gem from the back wall, back from the old GSI days between myself and Marvin Williams when we were on 90.3 FM WKRB, talking about him being courted by Mr. Cub himself to play for the Chicago Cubs. And there's that story. You can follow Marvin on Twitter at the side notes. That's the side notes on Twitter. You could follow me on Twitter at I'm Matt Ryan. You can follow the show on Twitter at 22 Weeks Pod. That is 22 Weeks Pod. Coming up next week, we are not going to have a show, but coming up, we're going to have a guest talking about Gil Rogers. Gil Rogers was a big focus of our conversation with Phil Rogers, but we're going to have in studio Mort Zachter, the author of Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life, that book being put out by University of Nebraska Press. I got to say thank you to the lovely people over at University of Nebraska Press and Triumph Publishing. Uh, we have great people on this show that we deal with that are in the publishing business, and we are so thankful to have them be a part of this show and get us great guests like Phil Rogers, like Mort Zachter. We're going to have a whole lot more great guests for you. We're working on Johnny Unitas Jr., so, if for those who like the show, know Johnny Unitas is one of my favorite quarterbacks, one of my favorite players of all time, and he put out a book called Johnny, You and Me, and we're going to be talking about that book right here on the show. Till next time, I'll see you on another side of Sunday. This has been the 22 Weeks Podcast.